0: We live in a grave new world, at war with Christianity, and Christians have some big-time spiritual catch-up work to do. We have been privatizing our faith while we are publicizing our sin. We are minimizing our engagement in God's community and maximizing the impact of an unhealthy crowd. We have access to all kinds of superstar Bible teachers, but have never been more biblically illiterate. We have bodies to house God's glory, and we use them as immorality dumping ground. We have an awesome God who loves us and gave himself for us, but we make love to his enemy. We use our freedom as a license to cast off all restraint. Supernaturally, we have been given tremendously powerful gifts, and we either abuse them, misuse them, or allow them to sit in disuse. We have minimal energy for eternal things, and endless reserves and margin for things that won't last. After all these years, our immature, premature faith is in the way of really doing life. I have good news and bad news, depending on how uh, you would interpret it. The good news is, well, we want the bad news or the good news first? You want the bad news first? The bad news is um, I bit off more than I can chew in, the, uh, in, the, in what we're going to cover today. The good news is you only have one point, in, I only have one point in my sermon. It, at least it's not a pointless sermon, it's, it's a one-point sermon, and uh, that's what we're going to be able to accomplish today. So uh, I do want to touch on, on the two matters, though, because 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, is, which is where we will be today, are really a bit of a package deal because um, you can see that at the end of chapter 6, he comes back to the topic of chapter 5. And so it's kind of, uh, there's this little section of chapter 6 included in the middle, which have to do with the same thing. It has to do with their handling of it, sin internally. Uh, in one case, dishan- not handling it, in another case, handling it very poorly. And so um, I do want to touch on that so that we get a, a context and a feel for how the two chapters work together, but we're really only going to handle 1 Corinthians 5 this morning. And that will work out fine, I think, because in our study, uh, it's really only dealing with uh, 1 Corinthians 5. I just had this optimistic idea that we could just do so much more, and, and the first service proved me wrong, as always, that the clock and I are at war all the time. I think, though, as, as we move through this, the most uh, massive danger in the vitality of the local and contemporary church is failing to take Christ or the church seriously. Um, I, I think those are the two, those two big matters uh, spin off all kinds of other problems. And uh, we accommodate too regularly, public sinfulness within the church. That's not taking Christ or the church seriously. And we parade our dirty laundry uh, before outsiders way too much. And those two things are are really uh, converging to uh, bring the modern church, our contemporary church, into some disrepair, particularly on the outside and the inside. If we want the world to take our Lord and the gospel seriously, then we need to take it seriously. And and this uh, section of the scripture, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, is really the Apostle Paul's plea urgently to the congregation, the church, take Christ seriously. Take the matter of the church seriously. And that's his urgency. And I think all of us uh, face a variety of watershed moments in our lives, and and we really do need to come to terms with uh, how we will respond to certain things. Uh, Will I serve the Lord wholeheartedly or not? Uh, Will I dabble with the way I used to live, or will I turn my back on that and allow the power and presence of the Spirit of God to move me away from the way I used to be? Will I be seduced into accommodating the ways of the world and the culture around me, the style style and the manner of the culture around me, or not? These are serious, watershed decisions that we must face in our lives. Joshua, that great statesman of the faith, of the people of God, uh, made this great and grand statement in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Now fear the Lord, he said, and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Are you going to dabble in the past, the way you lived as as ancestor when you were lost to God, or are you going to dabble with the present gods and in, in the present cultural sitting, setting you're in, or are you going to serve the Lord wholeheartedly? And this is the declaration he made on behalf of his family. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Every father, every man in here needs to come to that place in his life as the, as the leader of your family to make that declaration and give everything you've got, do all in your power with all of your energy to make that happen in your home but as for me and my household we are going to serve the Lord with all of our hearts that's a watershed declaration and Paul is is, uh, very disturbed here with the Corinthians because they're clearly they clearly have not uh, dealt with this issue and come to terms with this watershed declaration and then living it out and uh, so there are two questions that kind of surface out of these two chapters, and, and the first is this, are you, and these are questions I'm, I'm asking us, I'm asking us as a church family, are you going to be loyal to sin and sinner or the Savior? That's a question that has to be settled in your life and really, really settled. The second is this, are you going to be confident in the counsel of the ungodly or exclusively in Christ? And that's the second matter. The first matter he deals with is immorality. The second matter he deals with is is disputes among internally, disputes internally, and they seeking counsel and judgment outside of the church. Now, these cracks in loyalty and confidence are derived from two glaringly dangerous developments in our Christian behavior. The one is this. We have made the matter of sin personal business. Uh, because we have made our relationship with Christ overly personal rather than communal. In the matter of Christ and His body, the church. Now that may not sound that, that dramatic to you, but it really is. We've not been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ in isolation, not at all. We have been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ and placed in his body, in community. And so um, the the idea that uh, we have made our sin our personal business and nobody else's business, our relationship with Christ our business and nobody else's business, is not biblical Christianity, not at all. And uh, this is a a grave error that is being made in Corinth right from the get-go in their early, the idea that that sin is is a personal matter. And so uh, there's an approach that often pervades the modern church, that your sin is none of my business, and that my sin is none of your business, and who do you think you are making your sin my business? And uh, so we declare that we've got something going personally with God and butt out. This is a very reckless way to live, and uh, frankly, it is uh, the, the atmosphere, the context for many contemporary churches today. We're going to look at that. We're going to address that more thoroughly as we look at this text and the second problem that he addresses, which links right to this one, starting in chapter 6, verse 1, is we have made the separation of church and state rigidly unbiblical. Over these last 500 years or so uh, upon the Reformation, and, and understandably so, there's great and, and serious distress and, and uh, fear about the state interfering with the matters of of the church. And there's all as with as what usually happens, people overcorrect issues. And this matter of the separation of church and state has been one of those overcorrection uh, issues. Uh, we've made the church the separation of church and state so rigidly unbiblical that too many of us are viewing the church as being about religious things And the state about the things of the real world. And that the church has no business in the real world. And the real world has no business in the church. Quite frankly, a lot of us think that the church and what's taught at church is good for bedtime Bible stories. But if we want real help in the real world, we need to reach out to the outsider professionals. And Paul is addressing this in... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, whereby they were taking their lawsuits outside of the church. They were taking matters of disputes over material things, over things they couldn't get along with in the church. They were taking them outside and airing the dirty laundry of the church rather than trusting in the, the, uh, the um, uh, Holy Spirit-driven counsel from God's word and God's leadership in the church this is what he addresses in six now um, I I to say this and then I'm not gonna say I'm virtually gonna say nothing more about six today because as I said we don't have time but I'm gonna say this so that we're not confused if you're reading in chapter six um, this is not the Apostle Paul saying that there's no place for the legal system there's no place for judges and juries and all of that kind of stuff that's not what he's saying in fact Paul himself appealed to the justice system uh, for his rights as a citizen. You need that for public law and order. God ordains leadership, and God ordains uh, justice and, and, and judges and, and the, the order of law. God ordains all of that. It, it was the matter that their material possessions had become far more important to them than the reputa- reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they were doing business with one another, and perhaps something didn't work out very well, they were taking each other Uh, to court for judgments that should have been settled in the church because Paul makes the point, listen, don't you realize that the saints are someday going to judge the world, that the saints are actually going to judge angels, and you're thinking that the saints can't judge your minor, minor difficulties, minor disputes within the church. Why not be wronged? Why not be cheated rather than publicize that the church is fighting with itself to the outsiders. That becomes a publicity campaign for satanic mischief. So that's six. That was going to take me at least 20 minutes. So I've spared you that. But let's look at five. First Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present hand this man over to Satan, so that his flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new batch without leaven, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with bread without leaven, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Father, I pray this morning that you would open up our hearts and minds to this, your word. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace its correction, at times its rebuke, and that we would welcome change in our lives and in the practice of the community of faith. Because we need, oh God, to take seriously the Lord Jesus Christ and his body, the church, and the testimony of the gospel. I pray that we would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to ask you a big question this morning. Are we as a church willing to sharpen our focus on total praise, loyalty to Christ, by having an uncompromising attitude towards the ongoing and publicly flaunted sin of believers no it's a big question and it's packed with discovery that needs to come out of first corinthians five i think the right answer is yes yes we are but whether or not we are has to be looked at from the text and really wrestled with because This is a challenging reality. Let's understand something, that most modern churches today have a high tolerance of sin, way over the top tolerance of sin, that causes the general community of the church to be very spiritually unhealthy. And uh, as a result, nothing very miraculous or marvelous happens in many of today's churches. And, And there's a reason for that. In fact too many churches have to import great stories of the faith and great miracles and marvelous things that god has done at mission conference time because we don't have any great stories of marvelous and miraculous things of our own and there's a reason for that do you remember when um, jesus was hanging out in nazareth where he was from and several of the gospels record this particular incident where uh, Jesus, it's, re- it's recorded that, in, in, and in particular, I'm thinking of Mark um, chapter uh, 5 or 6, where in that text, um, it states that in this place, Jesus was unable to do many miracles. And, um, and so it goes on then to say, and in some translations, it goes on to say, because the people lacked faith. And a lot of people have Abuse that text to suggest that somehow the control of the miraculous and the marvelous is in the hands of people. That if people have enough faith, then Jesus can do great things. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because if you read that text carefully, what it says there, before it makes that statement, is the people were basically mocking Jesus. They were saying, who is this Jesus? He's a son of a carpenter. He's a carpenter himself. I, we know his brothers and his sisters. Um, he's, who is he that he, he should be doing or claiming to be doing miraculous and marvelous things? And it said there then that Jesus was unable to do many miracles in this place. And it goes on to say, because the people demonstrated great unbelief. Unbelief is a form or actually is the the, um, the 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 cause of sinfulness, the reason we sin is because we don't believe God, we don't believe what He says, we don't we've we've lost our sense of believing in Him, and so we choose an alternative, which is sin, and and so the v- bottom line is here, as as sin goes up in our lives, unbelief increases faithlessness goes down. Their faithlessness goes up. As sin decreases in our life, belief increases in our life. Uh, Faith increases in our life. And um, the reason that Christ is unwilling to do the marvelous and the miraculous among people of unbelief, among people of sinfulness, is not because he can't. There's no human being that can ever uh, stand in the way of God's miraculous, of God's marvelous. It's because he won't. And the reason he won't is because he will never aid and abet and encourage sinfulness and unbelief. When God's people in God's community are demonstrating unbelief and sinfulness, there will always be a scarcity of the miraculous of the marvelous. And so uh, we have this problem among us of uh, hedonism in the church. Hedonism simply means the pursuit of of pleasure and self-indulgence and the corinthians were of this impression and you you know uh, glaringly when you read in chapter 6 verse 12 there's this statement everything is permissible for me paul is commenting there on a corinthian slogan by the way not a biblical assertion uh, again we have uh, picked that up and we've used that out of the text incorrectly that's that's not a statement a biblical assertion whereby everything is permissible for us that's not true at all that was a corinthian slogan they were quite excited about how they would say we can do anything we want because we have jesus now they were misappropriating the grace of god they were saying listen we've been forgiven of our sins past present and future so that means we can sin any way we want And, and they were living out this lifestyle which everything is permissible to us look at us Everything's permissible to us. We can do whatever we want. We can live any way we want. We're forgiven of our sins. We go to heaven when we die. Isn't that a great life? And so Paul quickly intervenes in this Corinthian departure from truth and faith in this attitude of misappropriation of grace. The undeserved favor of God does rest on us. And we have been forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. So that we will not live in sin, we have been saved to be freed from our sins. To be freed from sinning. Everything's not permissible for us. We have been freed so that we don't sin against the living God. That's the great story of grace. There's this other matter that slips into our lives in the the contemporary church, which suggests the false ideas about the Christian prohibition of judging. I think regularly the favorite verse among contemporary Christians is, judge not lest you be judged. Don't you just love that verse? We love throwing it around at each other. Judge not lest you be judged. I'll not judge. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Have we not read Matthew, that chapter in 7? That whole chapter is about judgment. That whole chapter is about the fact that Jesus Christ is making clear distinctions between the things that please him and the things that displease him. In fact, in that very same chapter, it says there are going to be people who say, Lord, 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 didn't I do this? Didn't I cast out that? Didn't I, didn't I do this? And he'll say, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. He simply says in that text, listen, just be very careful about how you judge. Because the standard you use to judge will be the standard that God uses to judge you. He doesn't say don't judge. In fact, we're called to make distinctions between sinfulness, obedience to the word of God, and disobedience to the word of God, and, and sinfulness. We're called to this in our lives. In fact, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5 is going to actually Um, urge them with their need to judge sin. And then there's this whole idea of abuse of freedom. Freedoms may exist, and they do exist in the areas of preference. We have the freedom to wear a tie to church or not wear a tie to church. I exercise my freedom today to not wear a tie to church. We do not have freedoms in relationship to Christian ethics and commands of the Lord. We have no latitude or freedom in these things. None whatsoever. There's this idea and abuse, abuse of freedom among us that it doesn't matter, I can do anything I want. There's no such teaching in the Scriptures. That's why Paul actually, Paul actually jumped all over their slogan, everything is permissible for me. He said, but not everything is beneficial. That was how he jumped on their slogan to make a biblical assertion under it. Said, in fact, you should only be doing things that are for the building up of the body. These are the freedoms you have. You are free to build the body of Christ. You're not free to sin, to tear it down. And so um, Paul then launches into this circumstance where a man in Corinth, who claims to be a believer, he actually has a sexual relationship going on with his father's wife, presumably, of course, his stepmother. And presumably, his father has died. Presumably, his father married a much younger second wife, and this son is having a sexual relationship with her. Now, this was... Frowned upon, as Paul points out, even among the pagans. He said, This kind of practice, this isn't even done in the Roman among the Romans. They, they can't even imagine that this is going on in your church. And he says, and you're proud of this? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you in terms of taking Christ seriously? And, and taking the body of Christ seriously? and taking the gospel message seriously what is wrong with you paul's incredibly distressed and and so he gives us he lays this out here sort of a final corrective action against a very public sin known in known among the christians in the church and known outside as well now keep in mind before we start kicking each other out of the church Because it's unlikely that anybody lived a sinless life this week. But there is a difference between what's going on here and the sins that jump on us and we confess them before the Lord and we repent and we move forward with God's grace. There's a difference between that and a settled, unrepentant, committed lifestyle to absolutely reject the teachings of God in public, in the congregation, and publicly known outside. Because you know that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 18 with respect to how to deal with sin. He said, if your brother sins against you. Now the presumption here is, this is kind of a private matter. Now everybody doesn't know about this. This matter of internally, we, we, we every so often, we bump into each other. We sin against each other, and the teaching in Matthew chapter 18 is you go to that person privately. Express how the sin has affected you, what this sin is, and it says in the text that if the brother or sister repents and turns from that sin, the job is done. If they don't, it says there, what? You're to go and get another person. And you're to go to them and, and urge them and plead with them about this sinfulness and urge them to turn from it, to repent and turn from it. Then, if they won't, it says you're to take them to the church. Paul, we kind of pick up Paul here in this kind of level of sin, whereby this now has become a public community disaster. Okay? And there are steps to deal with a public community disaster of sinfulness. This is what this text is responding to. The final corrective actions against sin. And it starts, it always starts, with community grief over sin. See what Paul says, shouldn't you, verse 2, rather have been filled with grief? That should always be our attitude towards sin, we shouldn't think of smugly, oh, look at what's happening, or kind of nudge each other, you know. Oh, look at the, what they're, how they're living. Can you imagine and have this kind of cavalier attitude toward it. No, no, no. The community of God's people have always been immensely grieved by sin among them. That's the story of the scriptures, where where the great leaders of the faith have stood before God and the congregations of God's people and cried out to God, we have sinned against you, we, have, we are, we are grieved, we, we fall on our knees in repentance. It's always been that way. The scriptures teach us that, that godly sorrow, in fact, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. This is a matter of life and death that we're talking about here. The rescue, The reason Christ rescued us from sin is because it was killing us. The wages of sin is death and now we're going to flirt with it now we're going to let it be among us now we're going to nourish it and nurture it this is a matter of life and death paul says this is an urgency you should be very grieved about this you should be more grieved about this than you are grieving a person who's a a faithful champion of the faith who dies in your midst and goes to heaven this this is real grief grief about sin Godly sorrow will bring repentance. It leads to salvation and then no regret. But secondly, you, so you start with community grief over sin, but then you move on to, he moves on here to recognition of divine authority delegated to church leadership. You see what he says here? Even though I am not physically present, verse 3, I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. And then he pulls out the big guns. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. I want to linger here for a second, because regularly when you confront people with sin, they'll say, who do you think you are? I've had people say who, who do you think you are well I think I'm the shepherd of this church and do we realize what a community of faith is a community of faith is the most powerful gathering in all the universe you can have all the kings out there and all the rulers and all the magistrates all the leaders Pull together any group of people you want. But the most powerful gatherings in all the world are the gatherings of the people of God. You know why I say that? Because we gather in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the power of our great King and great magistrate, the Lord God himself, is presiding over our gathering and he delegates this authority to the leadership of church in his name when you gather in his name assembled in his name the power of God the presence of God the spirit of God is among us this is the power of our gathering this ought to be Uh, An encouragement to our hearts. And sin insidiously weakens the power that ought to be in a gathering like this. When we are in the presence of the living God. And he is presiding over us. And so we are tasked. Leadership of the church, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. Is tasked with watching out for your souls and accountable for it. Accountable to the living God, the leadership of the church is accountable to the living God for your souls individually. There's an interesting text in Isaiah, Isaiah 62, 6, where this same concept breaches all of the scripture. It breaches Old Testament and New Testament. The Lord has promised to his people that he would post watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. And they will never be silent, day or night. That's a a commission of the Lord. He has given His people, always, He has given His people watchmen, shepherds, pastors, overseers, leaders, who watch over your walls to ensure that the enemy does not breach the walls of your life. And we will not remain silent, day or night, if we see some danger or some risk. Because we failed to do our responsibility, to do our job. We'll give an account to God for that. That's why it says, you know, not many of you ought to be teachers. It's a sober thing. It's a sober thing to... To accept that responsibility and say, yeah, I'll be a watchman, Lord. I'll be a shepherd, Lord. I'll watch over the souls of your people, Lord. Paul says, this is your responsibility as a church. And then he points out that recognizing the passing of judgment on personal sinfulness is proper conduct in the Christian community notice what he says here all of a sudden he starts talking about he says your boasting's not good don't you know that a little leaven works through the whole batch And by the way the word is leaven not yeast I don't know a lot about baking but they're two different things and it's leaven get rid of the old yeast the old leaven I should say that you may be a new batch without leaven as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed now Paul is talking about sexual immorality all of a sudden he starts about talking about baking you're like, what? what are you, where, how did we go from sexual immorality of such a heinous variety that even pagans don't do this to, to baking? What's the tie in here? There's an amazing tie in here. And, and quite honestly, uh, I'm pretty amazed by this because the people of Corinth, you remember, were mostly or predominantly Gentiles. They were totally new to the, the religious milieu of the people of God. Uh, they wouldn't have known, at least. I would think as I was reading this, what would they know about the Passover lamb and the festival, which he's talking about the festival of unleavened bread and all of that kind of stuff. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the exodus. He's talking about the time when the Jews were, uh, were led by the Lord out of captivity, uh, out of, uh, and freed from their past lives. He's talking about all of that, and he's saying, Christ is your Passover lamb, and, and you're, you're to stop eating leavened bread, you're, you're, to, you're, to not, you're to be the new batch, and all. he's talking about all this kind of stuff. They're like, what are you talking about? But I'm convinced that Paul had taught them so well, that he actually had given them the history of God's people, and had taught them the theology of the exodus, and that now they are in the new exodus, where their spirits have been liberated from sinfulness, and he's giving this grand picture because, you see, um, as I understand it, and I know I'm wading into some dangerous territory here in baking yeast and leaven and all that kind of stuff, but, but my understanding is the whole idea of leaven, leaven was to, to cause the, the bread to rise, is to cause the flour and the wheat or whatever you use, and it was to cause it to rise. And, and the whole idea was we are celebrating a festival of the unleavened bread to remind us that, that God saved us so quickly uh, out, out of captivity, and he wanted us to move so quickly from that place that we didn't even have time to hang around and let the, let, let the bread be leavened, let the bread rise. We just had to get out of there. Get away, run away from captivity. And Paul is saying, this is the same thing. Don't you understand that the, the predominant number of times in the Bible, leaven is an illustration or reference to sin. And Paul is saying, don't you realize that you are a new batch you should be proud, you should, let, let's, he says, let's celebrate the festival. Let's run away from sin. Let's get away from it so fast that we run away from it, it doesn't even have time for the bread to rise. Get away from it. You're a new batch. The Passover lamb has come. The, sa- the sacrifice has been made. You've been liberated from sinfulness. Why in the world are you hosting it in your midst? And so he invites them to recognize this passing of judgment on personal sinfulness. I'm not sure if we know this, but in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, where it gives the descriptions of this particular feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, it says there this, Anybody who indulged in leavened bread... Which was to be purged as a symbol of their salvation from captivity was to be cut off. You see, once a year, uh, this, this leavening process is sort of like a sour dough bread thing. You, you, many of you ladies probably have a sour dough bread thing where you, you, you use um, this concoction that you've made and it hangs around in your fridge and then you take a piece of it and you can make more stuff. I know that's really crude, like, I, I really am showing complete baking ignorance. But I'm right, aren't I? You, you take stuff and you pass it on. And of course, passing this stuff from last week's stuff to this week's bread becomes last week's bread to the next week's bread. There's always the danger of, in this process, uh, toxicity occurring. And so once a year, they were to purge all of this concoction, get it out of there, And start over. And so this is the picture that he's giving to them here. He's saying, don't you realize that that you um, are are part of this purging of uh, the the annual celebration. The, The salvation of Jesus Christ is a picture of that once and for all, get rid of the leaven and live a life of faithfulness to God. And reminding them that in the Old Testament situation, if anybody ate leavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to be cut off from the community. Seriously kicked out of the community of faith. For eating a piece of bread? Yes! Now, if God would command that people should be kicked out of his community just because they disobeyed him by eating a piece of bread, how much more, Paul says, should you get kicked out of the community for practicing sexual immorality over and over again in the community? What's the reason? Because anyone back in that particular setting who would rebelliously and aggressively Take a piece of bread, stick it up to their face in kind of a Jose ba- Bautista kind of way, and chomp on it and fling it off, is intentionally dishonoring the salvation plan of God. They are flaunting their independence over the things of God. And Paul says, anybody who calls himself a believer and just continues to throw sin in the face of God is no different. And he says they should be disfellowshipped. They should be excommunicated just as they were in the old community of God. Serial sinfulness is a reckless disregard of our salvation. And you are to hand this man over to Satan so that his flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved. What's this? So that he is to be removed from the collective protective custody of being in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. When we are in the body of Christ, whether you know it or not, You are in protective custody. You are in this community that God loves. He protects you from the mischief of Satan. When you are on the outside of the people of God, you are not covered by the Holy Spirit's protection. You are out there open for the mischief of Satan. And the idea here is to remove him from that protective custody because while he is in the protective custody of of the Lord's people, he may not be motivated to change from his sinfulness But throw him out and allow Satan to attack him and affect him. Allow him to experience what it's like to be outside of the things of God, outside of the protection of God, outside of the fellowship of God's people. Allow him to feel what it's like to not sense the presence of God in his life and to realize that his sin is actually separating him from God and is leading him to hell. And the hope is that he will be so distressed that he will fall to his knees as his flesh is being pummeled by, this, by Satan. He'll fall to his knees and, and call out to God, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. And if he isn't a believer, he becomes one. If he was a believer, he gets his life in order before it goes completely off the rails. And we do no one any favors by refusing to confront the sinfulness in their lives that may give them the false impression that maybe they've got it okay with God and maybe they're going to end up in heaven because quite frankly, if you continue to sin over and over and over and over and over and over again, maybe you aren't a believer in the first place. And wouldn't it be horrible to have been in a fellowship like this all of your life with everybody patting you on the back and giving you a hug and telling you you're fine and end up at judgment seat with God saying, Depart from me, I don't even know you. Wait a second, I was at Calvary Baptist Church. I knew you. Yeah, but I don't know you. Would we love each other, truly love each other, if we would allow that to take place? And at the end, say, What, you saw that in my life? You didn't do anything about it. So, we refuse to associate anywhere with this person, not at the Lord's table, not in intimate community connection. We don't even eat with them, so that they'll feel the full effects of their spiritual Ebola, which will affect the whole congregation. It emboldens the congregation to be sinful and we focus on cleaning up our own house, God says, I'll judge the outside. You spend too much time doing that. You judge the inside. I've given you the authority to do that. You judge the inside. Expel the wicked man from among you. It is our job to judge. Father, I pray this morning, as we've encountered uh, this text, which is a hard text, But it is a health care text. It's a soul care text. Oh God, if we could see how critical this is to a community of faith, we would embrace a whole different way of living with each other. I pray, Lord, that uh, where if there is public sinfulness that is disgracing the name of Christ, known on the outside, clearly known on the inside, that we will deal with it biblically. For your great name's sake, I pray. Amen. Text really teaches us that if you won't stop sinning, we need to help you stop sinning. To love you enough to do that. We need to love the congregation enough to realize that, that sin spreads, causes all kind of damage within the congregation. It starts with a consecration of our own lives, individually. Before God, and then collectively with each other. Remember, the sin has to be extremely public, extremely damaging, and rebelliously unrepentant. So we don't kick each other out of the church. There's a special kind of stubborn sin that has to be run out of the church as an act of love. The community, of course, must be a place of Christ's power, truly invested in remedial redemption and not people of quick-trigger-finger-judgmentalism. This has to be about people who really care about each other, who really care about redemption. This is not to get rid of people. This is to ensure that people are in the kingdom of God, that they'll be redeemed and remedial action may be necessary. And this is also... A type of discipline that only works in a church that is among a a people who are really willing to take sin seriously and their loyalty to Christ as urgent and then believe that Christ will work powerfully and that we aren't given to trading back and forth from church to church people who have been disfellowshipped or excommunicated. Too often someone can be discipline from one church and drive three blocks to another church and nobody does anything about it It, it, we are a grand and a large body of Christ it it undermines everything that God wants to do so with care, leadership bring people in and exercise discipline if necessary, that's the way church has to work, a true powerful church of Jesus Christ, which is what we want to be, right what I believe we are so our Father, this morning we pray and ask that you would help us to shore up anything that's been, become sloppy and to take very seriously Christ and his church. Oh God, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.